Hey, good morning, everybody, and welcome to iSelect's Deep Dive Series. My name is Tom Bunn. I'm an associate on the iSelect Fund Ventures team, and I'm excited to walk you through today's discussion and, and uh, facilitate uh, what I hope to be a, a very educational um, hour we have here with, with some great guests. iSelect is an early-stage venture capital firm based in St. Louis, focused on early-stage companies in food, agriculture, and health. iSelect invests at the forefront of innovation, seeing emerging problems, solutions, and tech in their infancy. And we use these deep dive presentations not only as a way for us to better engage with and understand new science and technology, but also to engage with the experts and entrepreneurs who are driving change and innovation in their fields. Today's deep dive is, a, is slightly different than most. <clears throat> Given that one of our portfolio companies, Molecular Assemblies, is continuing to make great strides in the synthetic biology space, we thought that today's webinar could take a closer look at the company and the downstream applications it unlocks. Molecular Assemblies is a San Diego-based company making DNA. We've gotten very good at reading DNA over the last few decades, but our ability to write it has stagnated for a few reasons, which we will discuss today. Molecular Assemblies represents a paradigm shift in the way we synthesize DNA and has the potential to unlock increasingly useful tool, tools in the broader synthetic biology toolkit. Before we get started, a few process comments. We are not soliciting investment or giving investment advice in any way whatsoever. This presentation is general industry research based on publicly available information. We've invited you to this because you are technologists, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, industry experts, early adopter customers, or sophisticated investors that are part of the iSelect network. We value your thoughts, questions, comments, and insights into this topic, and would greatly appreciate it if you actively engage during the presentation. Feel free to go down to the bottom of your Zoom icon and ask questions at any time, um, and we will have a dedicated uh, portion of this call for, for some more Q&A towards the end. <clears throat> so we do hope for this to be an engaging and interactive presentation, so again, feel free to chime in on the Q&A box. Um, and finally, this presentation is being recorded and will be available for replay. So without further delay, I'm pleased to bring you this week's deep dive on DNA synthesis uh, with molecular assemblies as a uh, uh, case in point here. So the way we'll, we'll get started, we'll do very brief introductions. I'd ask that the speakers uh, stick to you know, no longer than about 45, 60 seconds for their introductions. Um, then we'll get into the background uh, in terms of you know, what DNA is, what synthetic DNA is, what syn synthetic bio, synthetic biology is, synbio for, sure, for short. Um, and then we'll get into market use cases. So um, four big buckets um, where synbio and, and this need for synthetic DNA um, is, is uh, keenly needed. Um, although there are other buckets that we could consider here. But uh, for the purposes of this call, We'll dive into a couple, talk to a few stakeholders um, who are in markets for uh, algos and synthetic DNA, um, and then we will discuss uh, any remaining questions, and hopefully it can be more conversational uh, towards the tail end. So I'm super excited about our, about our guest today. Um, why don't we just start left to right? Uh, Mike Kamdar, do you mind giving a, a brief introduction of who you are? Sure. Good morning. Um, I'm Mike Kamdar. I'm the president and CEO of Molecular Assemblies. <clears throat> been in that position for the last five years. Prior to that, I spent about 25 years here in San Diego biotech building. Um, biotech companies focused on virology, oncology, uh, as well as other therapeutic applications. And it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Terrific. Thanks, Mike. 
And John Nichols, do you mind giving a bio? Uh, sure. Hi, uh, John Nichols. Uh, I'm president and CEO of Codexis Incorporated. Uh, Codexis is a, um, a, a publicly listed NASDAQ company. Uh, it's been a business for about 20 years. Look forward to weave in um, our company history, story, and, and relationship with DNA. Uh, I joined uh, Codexis president and CEO about nine years ago. Prior to that, I had 20 plus years uh, as an executive in the chemical industry. So I really appreciate being here, Tom. Terrific. Thanks, John. Uh, Dr. Joe Bedell, do you mind giving a brief introduction? Sure. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Joe Bedell, I have a PhD in genetics, and I currently work at Bayer Crop Sciences as a data scientist in our insect toxin discovery program, and I'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, I joined Monsanto as it was uh, a few years ago, about seven years ago, and I came in as the uh, technology scout led a technology scouting group looking for new technologies for our high throughput DNA fingerprinting. Uh, and before that, I ran the business development group at Sigma Aldrich. So I've got a bit of business technology, genetics, and uh, data science, computational biology background. So I'm kind of a, a mutt. Uh, I look forward to speaking with you later today. Thanks, Joe. And last but not least, Dr. Katie Whalen. Do you mind giving a brief introduction, please? Of course, Tom. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. Um, I, I like the description of a, a mutt background. I feel like I'm accumulating a similar uh, type of experience. Um, I'm, I'm a scientist by training, biochemist and bioinformatician, um, relatively new at, at Bonomos, leading up their innovation delivery, which is scaling everything from R&D up into the commercial scale and spent the last five years with a food ingredient manufacturer uh, working on another exciting uh, biocatalysis project. Fantastic. Well, thanks everybody, let's, uh, let's dive into it. So um, just to set the stage a little bit, this may be um, old hat for many in the audience, but just wanted to make sure we're coming at it from a, a level playing field. Um, as we get into some of these concepts, I feel like it's important to start from square one, first base. Um, most people know what DNA is, but really it's the building blocks of life. Um, importantly, it's the, um, the building block of life and carries genetic instructions for the development, um, functioning, growth, and reproduction of all known organisms. Um, and de novo DNA synthesis, which is um, what we're discussing today, is, is the synthetic creation of DNA rather than the assembly or modification of natural precursor template DNA sequences. So it's, it's starting from nothing and, and, and starting from no DNA um, and coming to DNA. Um, in a synthetic fashion, and there are a few ways you can do that. Um, and de novo DNA synthesis ultimately fits nicely into this category uh, that ISELECT looks at very closely called synthetic biology, which is an, an emerging field that uses the building blocks uh, of, of life, uh, um, so DNA, to create value-added products um, or desired in, in, in products for consumers. Um, so you can see on the bottom right-hand corner, of this graph or of this uh, slide, uh, some, some of the near-term applications um, that synth synthetic biology, biology really lends itself to. So you can see it's, it's cross sectors from agriculture to cosmetics and skincare, to healthcare, to software and industrial chemicals. So it's really um, dipping into many different sectors and has applicability um, across many different sectors. Um, and so with this synthetic biology, part of, uh, part of the iteration process is, is, you know, what they call design, build, test cycle. And with 
de novo DNA synthesis um, with new DNA, you can ultimately expedite part of that process and really um, design and build things uh, much faster than previously thought possible. Um, and that allows us to get to these advanced products with advanced functionality and desired end products faster, more efficiently, um, and ultimately uh, making better products. So de novo D DNA synthesis is really at the core of what molecular assemblies is doing. Um, Mike, since you are the CEO, would, would be great if you could kind of talk broad strokes about what you're doing compared to everybody else. Um, what's the state of the industry? Um, and why is, it, why is it so important to get this next generation of DNA de novo synthesis? Sure, thanks, Tom. Uh, just, just by way of background. So anybody that uses DNA currently, the DNA is made chemically. And it's a, it's a methodology that was, that was created about 40 years ago um, and reduced to practice. It's gotten a little bit more efficient in terms of the delivery of it, in terms of using inkjet technologies and others to make it faster. But essentially, there, there are limitations to that chemistry. Limitations are, one, you use harsh chemicals and, and organic solvents that require disposal. Also, you're limited in the length of the DNA that you can create. So currently, most people are, are buying 70 nucleotides, 70 to about 100 nucleotides. And that's useful on the left side of this slide for things like probes and primers to be able to use DNA in academic labs and, and so on and so forth. What molecular assemblies is pioneering is building DNA enzymatically. So just the way your body makes DNA. So really it's a two-step aqueous process, <laughs> no organic solvents. We have a, a higher cycle efficiency. We have, it, it's an entirely enzymatic process. So no chemicals at all. We have a proofreading step. And, and, and the, the, the idea is to be able to generate long pure DNA. And what we're talking about is 100 nucleotides and greater all the way up to a gene, which at minimum will be 1500 nucleotides. So what you can see in the bottom of the slide is all the different applications that are opened up by, by being able to do this. So things like CRISPR. So CRISPR in life sciences, you'll hear from Joe CRISPR in, in agriculture, uh, all the way through to antibodies, vaccines. We announced a, a collaboration we'll talk about with DARPA and GE research a little later in the talk focused on vaccine development, all the way out to full length genes. So I think what we're doing is unlocking the potential to move into much longer DNA, which opens up doors into therapeutics, into agriculture, into DNA data storage, we'll talk a little bit about towards the end of the talk. So that's essentially what, what Molecular Assemblies has been doing over the last several years. Great. And just <clears throat> to get definition straight, mm -hmm. it's fair to say that oligos make up genes, and you mentioned kind of the 2,500 uh, threshold for genes. Will, will, will molecular be part of that gene synthesis uh, using oligos or um, how will that's, that work? That's, that's, that's our goal, Tom. We have, we'll have an oligo synthesis line uh, for, for shorter DNAs and then all the way up to gene assembly. So we'll have a gene synthesis line as well. So be able to provide uh, what customers need in different spectrums. So generally speaking for somebody in the CRISPR-Cas space, they're looking at 200 nucleotides and longer other folks that want full-length genes, you're talking about 1,500 nucleotides all the way out to, to much greater. Great, thank you. And then just diving into the market, um, you know, so as, as Mike mentioned here, um, huge huge applicability across, across sectors, uh, whether it's therapeutics, material science, ag, DNA storage, 
um, you see on the left-hand side kind of a general breakup of the market for these synthetic oligos um, with gene synthesis uh, taking kind of the lion's share here um, and anti antibody therapeutics coming in a close second, but, but still very large numbers in terms of uh, CRISPR and CAR T cell therapy, which we'll talk about a bit later. Um, but notice the bottom right-hand corner of this graph, you know, really projected to go from about 12 billion in 2021, growing to about, you know, 60 billion in total available markets. So, you know, 500% growth over the next nine years. Um, you know, would be curious to get Mike and John's perspective as to as to what the major differences is differences you think will be in terms of ratio of markets here. So, is it fair to say gene synthesis will still take the lion's share in 2030, or how do you think that mix that ratio might uh, might shake up? I mean, personally, I think what what you're seeing on the left side is really sort of the life science applications. <clears throat> so, we expect the life science applications to grow tremendously. We also know that there's tremendous need and want for DNA in agriculture. And we also know there's a want and need in food and beverages. So I think you could, you could envision multiple pies like that, Tom, that, that show the, the demand for DNA. As long as once we start to show that we can prove that we can make long DNA, there's markets that we probably don't even exist yet that will, will open up just by able to be able to use long DNA. Sure. Fantastic. Well, moving on to Codexis, um, we'd love to get John Nichols involved. Again, John is, is, uh, is on the board of Molecular and, and um, uh, comes at this from a very unique perspective with um, some deep experience in the industry. John, can you tell us a little bit about Codexis? And then we'd love to hear um, your kind of long-term strategic thinking and, and wanting to partner with Molecular and, and uh, where you see that partnership going. Yeah, hey, thanks a lot, Tom. And uh, um, so Codexis... Um, we're about 250 person company today, a little under that, but we're growing through that number this year. Uh, and, and generally we focus on enzymes. We focus on the products of synthetic biology manipulated organisms. And of course, to create, uh, to manipulate organisms, to create new diverse products like our focus on enzymes, we need a tremendous amount of DNA analogos to, to run through our discovery process. So at a high level, um, Codexis pulls from naturally available sources of enzymes, either from nature. Um, uh, you know, the human body is running on over a million different proteins. Uh, 22,000 of those are coded directly by human DNA. But then the other um, nearly a million are, are derivatives uh, through the various mechanisms, biochemistry in the body. So that's a great pool of, of natural enzymes to pull from and other sources as well. Um, but that barely scratches the surface of how we can design uh, enzyme structures. Um, in effect, uh, uh, you know, if you just fix the length of an enzyme at 500 amino acids in length, in length you, you have 20 different natural amino acids to pull from, increasingly companies are venturing into non-natural amino acids as part of that pool. But today, the vast majority of enzyme discovery is using the natural 20 enzyme, uh, sorry, natural 20 amino acids. So you have 20 to the 500th power of optionality. So nature has, has evolved very effective enzymes, but has barely scratched the surface 
of looking at the diversity of enzyme structures as potential new products for the world. And for um, nearly 20 years, that is, uh, that is really the only thing that Codexis has focused on is looking at that diversity, screening that diversity, becoming increasingly effective at looking at um, orders of magnitude, greater diversity to find new products, new enzyme-based products. And we're, we're in a renaissance. We're, we're seeing uh, you know, uh, opportunities that, uh, that are deeply involved in healthcare, as we'll discuss a little bit, um, increasingly involved in food and food ingredient applications and other uh, wider um, uh, marketplaces um, uh, where enzymes can deliver unique functionality. Our focus is to, to find new enzymes that are, are, um, are, are indeed patentable um, and to commercialize those as a key part of our go-to-market. It's not only to discover the enzyme structure that works, but also to, to commercialize the best structures uh, for, uh, for, the, for the target application. So maybe just real quickly, the next slide, Tom, shows the markets that we've been focused on. Uh, our entire 20-year history has been focused on on the sustainable manufacturing uh, marketplace, and in particular, finding enzyme structures that enhance the manufacturing processes for complex chemistry, complex small molecule drugs in particular. And that's a booming application for enzymes to enhance the manufacturing process for chemistry. Um, uh, more recently, we have started to really take off into other areas, uh, finding applications for engineered enzymes and life science tools. And that brings us to our partnership with Molecular Assemblies. Um, and really, this is an area that we only started to explore just three or four years ago. And then third and last but not least, uh, to use our, uh, our enzyme discovery platform to, to find new um, uh, new drug substances themselves, enzyme replacement therapies, uh, enzymes that will be delivered by gene therapies into human biology. And so now we're running about 12 different disease programs uh, in, uh, in the discovery through um, early clinical stage as a company as well. Uh, so these are the core areas. Um, like I had uh, uh, said in the introduction, uh, a new area for us is to engineer enzymes that enhance a range of different life science tools applications from enzymes that are required to do next generation sequencing more effectively to um, uh, other applications for, for uh, DNA read, write, and edit. Um, and uh, the, the enzymes can enhance the process for nucleic acid synthesis. Uh, we have uh, a recently launched product that's involved in messenger RNA manufacturing. Um, but as we looked at the market for DNA synthesis, uh, there's a range of early stage companies uh, that aspire to, to change the world of DNA synthesis using engineered enzymes. And we, um, uh, we felt that um, molecular assemblies actually had the leading technology position in enzymatic DNA synthesis. Um, and so together with our um, enhanced uh, and we think world leading enzyme engineering capability, we're bringing enzyme, engineered enzymes to uh, the partnership with uh, molecular assemblies to make them become the world leading enzymatic DNA synthesis company. Uh, that's both Mike and, and my vision. Uh, and as we've done that, we have uh, accumulated um, a significant amount of equity in molecular assemblies as part of that partnership.
Awesome. I, I just think it's a, such a cool partnership in that um, obviously you're helping them develop their enzymes to optimize their process. And then once their process is humming, uh, their oligos could, could help you, um, you know, further refine your process, your enzymatic process for, for them or other customers. So it's a, a, it's kind of the definition of a virtuous feedback loop and, and, you know, would be curious to get your thoughts on, um, you know, as you're seeing oligos, as you're buying oligos in the market, um, if you can kind of attest to some of these, you know, long wait times, uh, impure uh, oligos, et cetera, um, as it sounds like you are in that market for that as well. Yeah, yeah Tom, that's very true. Um, and so we're super excited to become customers of molecular assemblies as we succeed with the enzymes that enable their technology to be world leading. Um, and, you know, just to give you a feel for uh, for how we do enzyme discovery, how we do enzyme engineering work. Um, the, the, the work always begins with creating, if you will, a blueprint for performance for an enzyme. So in the case of working with molecular assemblies, um, being able to, to dock effectively with nucleic acids, right? Because we're adding nucleic acids to chains of nucleic acids. So this ability to to have an enzyme receive nucleic acid, uh, uh, nucleic acid uh, chains. Uh, the ability to, to react on other nucleic acids to that chain. So it's a reactivity spec. Um, uh, and that needs to be, to be cost effective. That has to be incredibly fast, incredibly high reliability um, addition reaction yield um, in order for Mike and his team to be able to have a competitive um, capability for DNA synthesis. Then, you know, the, the, the conditions with which that, uh, that reaction operates, the, 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 um, the other um, reagents that are involved in the, chain, in, the, in the process of DNA synthesis, the temperature with which we can run, the temperature with which the enzymes need to be stable. So we specify all these things and we rapidly determine that no enzyme on the planet either from leading companies or academic or from nature comes anywhere near the specifications that are required to become economically competitive and viable. So we, um, we pull from leading enzymes to start our process. And actually that's one of the reasons we chose uh, Mike and Bill and their team is because they had actually done some good work to patent some novel enzyme structures that enabled us to kind of kickstart our directed evolution, our enzyme improvement process. Uh, from there, so we, now we have a starting backbone and we have a target set of performance. Uh, from, from here, um, Codexis's platform technology, we call it Codevolver kicks in gear. And today we are looking at anywhere from five to 10,000 different enzyme structures, uh, variations off of that starting backbone. We're modifying five to 10,000 different um, uh, enzyme structures uh, to look at how that diversity, structural diversity, translates and correlates with the performance attributes that we aspire to create. Um, those 5,000 to 10,000 uh, different enzyme structures need to be created with synthetic biology tools. We need to acquire oligos and genes. We need to, to put them into uh, our organisms. We need to to, ex to have those organisms grow and express the target enzymes. We need to pick those enzymes from those five to 10,000 different organisms in high throughput, small scale on target. We need to sequence 
the products to make sure we know what kind of enzyme structure we're actually dealing with. And then we need to go through a whole range of different performance assay testing. A massive amount of synthetic biology needs to take place to, to find out amongst that five to 10,000 different variations, do we have a better performing enzyme for DNA synthesis? Uh, when I joined the company nine years ago, to run five or 10,000 variants would take Codexis the better, better part of three, three months for a, a given team of a handful of scientists. Today with enhancements in, um, in uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence, enabling us to predict performance better, uh, and, and tr tremendous automation and miniaturization to do high throughput creation of enzymes and testing of enzymes, we can run five to 10,000 uh, different enzyme variants, get the performance data in two to three weeks. And that cycle time continues to shrink and the numbers of different variants we can look at and test in that cycle continue to increase as well. Um, it, it takes that kind of scouring of, of, of enzyme structural diversity to find the kinds of improvements for an enzyme to really affect the world. Um, if we weren't able to look at that that quickly, today we've been working with molecular assemblies for a year, and, and we expect to continue to look at diversity for another six or so months. Um, we have looked at over a million different structures to date to find um, what will become a patentable, unique enzyme that will truly enable the performance the DNA synthesis uh, performance attributes that molecular assemblies needs to compete in a competitive world. So hopefully that and, was not too and long. To put that into perspective, Tom, just you know, our fledgling protein engineering group at, at molecular assemblies is able to make about a hundred variants a month. So you know you can see the the scale that John points out, as well as the speed and efficiency. We just couldn't have done all this in a year uh, without their expertise and skill set. Yeah, we don't think anyone can do what I described today. State of the art ability to, to, to create and assess that much enzyme diversity. We think Codexis is in a league of its own. And uh, through the partnership, um, uh, Molecular Assemblies is exclusively tapping into that expertise uh, for their enzymatic DNA synthesis technology. Fantastic. That's an incredibly helpful <clears throat> background there. Um, and again, a very cool partnership. Um, it seems like it's just the beginning here. Um, so I want to move on uh, to talk about a few other applications, if my screen will go off frozen. Um, so very quickly, you know, many of you know we're, we're food and ag and health investors. On the food and ag side, um, we're excited about SynBio because, um, you know, ultimately the possibility to increase yield and nutrition, lower costs, uh, to impart less strain on natural resources from a sustainability perspective, uh, for animal welfare, um, and ultimately for product product customization and consumer choice and welfare um, is greatly aided by uh, the speed and the uh, the dynamism of, of synthetic bio biology and what it allows you to create. Um, so there are a lot of different potential applications as, as listed here. We're, we're, we'll dive into a couple of them. And clearly you see one of the key enabling technologies is DNA synthesis, um, along with the DNA sequencing uh, that we discussed earlier, which is the, the, the quote-unquote reading and the synthesis is the quote-unquote writing of that DNA. Um, and to point to Mike's point earlier about kind of the agricultural applications on the bottom right hand of, of your screen, this is from Global Market Insights, uh, they're projecting the agriculture applications and synthetic bio biology to grow 
uh, over 24 percent um, between 2019 and 2025. So that's part of that number going to 60 billion market size. Um, we think of you know a rather large chunk of that will be going to some of these uh, applications within food and ag. So getting right into it <clears throat> on the synthetic DNA and ag tech applications, um, you know we're focused on a lot of these companies. Some of these companies have uh, we've invested in. Um, you know Pivot Bio was just in the news recently. Um, they have bacteria that that fix nitrogen from air are, are used as or traditionally bacteria that fix nitrogen from air are used as as biological nitrogen fertilizers. Um, but historically, you know, they're not compatible with many cereal crops, including corn, wheat, and rice. Uh, but Pivot Bio has created the first biological fertilizer for corn based on a microbe that associates with corn roots and has the necessary gene to fix that nitrogen. Um, so the, when the genes are turned, the, the genes are, are off when most needed. So synthetic biology was turned, was used to turn these, these key genes on uh, to help fix that that nitrogen. Um, they just raised several hundred million at a, at a whopping $2 billion valuation. Um, a couple more in this list on the left, uh, Benson Hill is a um, success story in our portfolio. Um, they combine data analytics and plant biology to predict biological outcomes that drive food system innovation. Um, and they're using um, a number of different tools um, to, to kind of assess the validity of, of, the, of the crops in silico and then, and then um, in practice, and uh, they're, they're likely going to continue using um, oligos and be, be um, a purchaser of oligos going forward. Vesteron is another in our portfolio. Um, they're designing peptides for crop protection. They do outsource some DNA synthesis um, and will continue to do so as they uh, enhance their portfolio. And then a couple others as well, Ginkgo Bioworks active across many different industries, but uh, just inked a, a partnership with a, with a major ag uh, company. Um, so there's a lot going on um, in specifically ag tech applications, whether it's enhancing crops or um, enhancing uh, crop protection uh, or enhancing uh, livestock um, possibilities whether on the recombinetics front. Um, so today we have with us uh, Dr. Joe Bedell from, from Bayer. Um, he is working in this space. Um, Joe, do you mind talking a little bit about what you're doing uh, with, with Bayer and, and uh, kind of the process you've taken and, and your exposure to the uh, synthetic oligo market? Yeah, sure. So um, within Bayer Crop Sciences as a whole, we do use the synthetic bio, uh, DNA for gene editing, we're doing CRISPR applications. We have a number of applications where um, we need synthetic DNA or fold vectors to, to produce proteins for us. Um, but my near and dear job is uh, insect toxins. And so what we've been doing for years since 95, 96 is sequencing bacteria and looking for um, genes. They make genes and proteins that kill insects and these, you know, they're, they're near crops. Um, and so um, what we're doing is looking, sequencing the bacteria and then generating these things that we think are insect toxins and then putting them through an in vitro process where we actually feed them to the different insects and see if it kills them. Um, and so the screening process is hundreds or thousands of potential toxins. 
Uh, and the way we used to do this is um, by PCR, we would actually have the bacteria organism that we needed. We could do um, a PCR to synthesize the gene from that bacteria in particular, express it in a vector and, and feed it to our insects. Um, but over the last few years, um, we've been going into pools of bacteria. So it's called metagenomic sequencing, where we actually will take a clump of dirt and we will sequence the DNA in there. And so we don't necessarily know which uh, bacteria it goes back to. Um, and so what we've been forced to do is uh, go through the synthetic route. So it's still, it's more expensive right now than doing the PCR that we had before, um, but we really have to because we don't have a source to go back to. Um, and so we need something that's, um, that's cheap and fast. Um, it, it's more expensive than we need right now, but, but we have to go that way. Um, and this is on the side of the chart where we're talking about gene synthesis. So, you know, our average insect toxin is probably 3000 bases long. Um, and so we have to use some, some companies that can kind of take these blocks and, and put them together. Um, but it takes a while. Um, and we also need very, um, high quality, um, accurate DNA synthesis, because the first step is to identify a toxin and test it. And, and we do a lot, actually listening to John talk about what Codexis does. I didn't really realize how similar it was on a, on a much lower throughput scale to the enzyme engineering that they do, because what we'll do is we'll, we'll take the natural uh, gene, we'll synthesize it, we'll put it in the food, we'll see if it kills the insect. For the most part, it will uh, the ones that we find will have some um, uh, properties that we like, um, but maybe it takes too high of a dose. And so then we have to go into some enzyme engineering and we make predictions just like they do at, um, at Codexis on uh, what we think we need to change. And so then we have to generate those through, again, a, a very long process. And if we had the ability to just synthesize all of those projects for the lowest cost, the right price point, um, that would help too. But again, it's in the hundreds or thousands a year. Um, and we're even looking at new technologies that could make that go up even higher. Um, and so the really the rate limiting and the cost limiting step is going to be the DNA synthesis. Great. Fantastic. Thanks for that, Joe. Any questions there? Cool. Well, going on to um, the food and ingredient side. Um, <clears throat> so this is a side that I think is more uh, visible, especially to consumers, um, as uh, the SynBio in ingredients is, is becoming fairly well established. Um, there are brands like Impossible, uh, major success stories uh, with consumer buy-in. Um, and Impossible is a, is a great example of, of something like this. So many of you have probably heard of uh, the molecule heme that they use and what they did um, was they found out that some plant roots uh, bleed, so to speak, when cut. And uh, <clears throat> then they, the company modified a yeast, a yeast um, and engineered it to produce this soy hemoglobin, which, which improves these meaty flavors um, and, and you know, makes the, the eating experience more akin to uh, a traditional hamburger. Um, so numerous other examples here as well. Geltor is a portfolio company of ours. Um, they're engineering host systems using synthetic DNA uh, uh, to start with in, in collagen um, in the uh, kind of um, the, the fashion world or the uh, makeup world. I'm blanking on the 
the uh, the right term there, but uh, they also have uh, inroads into the, the food and beverage world as well. Um, and another portfolio company we have with us today is, is Bonimos and Dr. Katie Whalen, um, who's active in this market. Um, Katie, can you tell us a little bit about first an overview um, briefly of what Bonimos does and then Secondly, your involvement in the marketplace for, for Alagos in the production process of, of these rare sugars. Yeah, absolutely. And it feels like, uh, you know, food and food ingredients are are just starting to collide with SynBio and, and the, the synergies are fantastic. So we produce at Bonimos rare sugars, um, rare as in they're in low abundance in, in nature, um, but they're very attractive because they're very good for you. Allulose and tagatose, you know, they have very low glycemic index. They have lower calories than cane sugar. Um, they're good for your teeth. They're good for your liver. Um, but like I said, they're in such a low abundance. You couldn't plant like a field of, you know, tagatose plants and then extract the sugar from it. So you have to produce it, manufacture it another way. And SynBio is so good for food because the, you know, in, in most world, uh, parts of the world now, we do not want synthetic food, uh, synthetic food ingredients. We want things made through natural means and enzymes are a perfectly natural means to make um, food ingredients. So the Bonimos technology relies on not one, but six enzymes um, that, that work in concert to convert very abundant, low value um, starch or maltodextrin into these very attractive high value sugars. Um, so the, the core technology is enzymatic. Um, and in order to improve that technology, you have to do enzyme evolution. The, the odds that you'd go out into nature and find the perfect enzyme for you that works at the cost and under the manufacturing conditions you need to make a particular food ingredient is very unlikely. So you're gonna to have to engage with a, a codexus in order to improve those enzymes and reduce that cost contribution to your manufacturing process. So for, for a company that's only focused on two ingredients right now, um, in our engineering campaigns, we need 6,000 different genes every three months. Um, so we need a large abundance of genes to do the process that, that John Nichols was describing. We're making very small modifications to the enzyme. Does it improve the enzyme? Does it reduce the enzyme? If it improves it, great, we keep it. We make more iterations, more modifications until what we have is a very robust, very stable biocatalysis. Um, so, you know, when I look at the technology that molecular or, uh, assemblies can offer, it's fantastic. We need lots of genes. We need them to be very high fidelity and we need them fast. Um, and this looks like finally a technology that could enable that. Thanks, Katie. And in your experience with Bonimos, and it sounds like you have a ton of other experience in this space as well. You know, lumping the, the, the pain points that I've heard in terms of cost, fidelity, and turnaround time, do one of those pain points kind of stick out as, as more so than the others uh, for you and your experience? Um, it, you know, cost, if we can bring that cost down, um, it just opens up how many more, you know, different applications enzymes could, could find themselves in, how many different manufacturing process, right, and the price point of that end product. Um, but more recently, just with the way the world is, time has become uh, the, big, the big bottleneck and, and just the ability to get those um, genes. Um, and and we're, we're working with genes that are between 600 and 2,400 base pairs. So we're on that, that larger side um, and, and caught, time has been the, the big killer. Sure, thank you for that. Very much appreciated. 
So moving on to some, some healthcare applications here. <clears throat> so um, there, are, there are numerous, but I uh, wanted to touch on vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostics here. And then we'll talk about uh, some, of the, some of the cool ideas that Molecular has with, with DARPA. Um, but you know, on the vaccine front, uh, synthetic DNA is very useful for the development of vaccines. Um, a viral vector vaccine uses a viral vector to deliver genetic material, coding for desired antigen in the recipient's host cells. Um, there's also obviously front and center over the last uh, few months, um, mRNA vaccines. Um, so Mike, can you kind of tell us where, uh, what sort of inflection points, um, molecular assemblies we need to get to, to, to really become part of that mRNA, uh, conversation for some of these big mRNA vaccine manufacturers? Sure. Sure, Tom. So, you know, I'll give you a good example. I think, you know, we had, we announced this year that we're working with GE Research um, and DARPA. And the idea here, it's, it's, it's kind of Star Wars, but it's also closer than you think. It's essentially building a six by six foot by six foot box that you would incorporate our um, enzymatic technology. There, there's a picture of it uh, along, with the, along with GE's Vectorettes. And you'd be able to drop this into a hot zone and be able to deliver you know, 2000 unit doses overnight. So, you know, you think about things like Ebola and other outbreak viruses, but then obviously what we've all experienced with the pandemic, you know, th these, are, these are coming forward very rapidly. So, you know, we have, we have smaller goals uh, in the first year with DARPA, but ultimately trying to get out to, you know, 3KB, we're going, we're going out much further in length ultimately to be able to deliver on this, on this technology. And, and it, it's, a, it's a great, uh, Sort of advancement for us because I think if you if you came and talked to us two years ago we would we would have told you we were going to get into vaccines so I think it's a uh, a testament to milestones and really staying focused on moving things like this forward uh, and and you can really only do that with enzymatic technology as I mentioned at the outset you can't put harsh chemicals into something like this and expect it to be successful so so again another another point it shows where enzymatic efforts could really open new doors for therapeutics and vaccines and treatments like this. Great, thanks for that, Mike. Um, you know, other other areas of interest on the therapeutic side, um, there's a whole host of applications here. You know, a, one that I find um, incredibly interesting, and and uh, you know, from a story perspective, is the is the CAR T cell cancer therapy. Um, so CAR T cell therapy is ex vivo, so out of the body engineering of T cells, a patient's own T cells, uh, followed by its transfer back to the, the patient's body. So it's not a drug per se, it's a, it's a cell therapy, enhancing the, the, the uh, patient's own cells to, to fight the cancer. And a great uh, win story here is, is a, a drug called Kimraya, which was the first such therapy, T-cell therapy to get to FDA approval in uh, 2017, I believe. And this targets a type of leukemia, uh, fairly common in children and young adults. Um, and it's had great, um, has had great success so far. Um, there have been, I think, 83% uh, remission rates in patients um, who've, who've been exposed to this therapy. So a lot on the therapeutic side, um, exciting stuff on the cancer side. Um, I know John um, is very interested in the diagnostic side. Um, John, can you tell us a little bit about what you're excited about on, uh, on the diagnostic side, specifically for this technology? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll speak to the enzyme opportunity, which uh, clearly and easily can translate to an upstream need for, for 
DNA diversity, high, high fidelity, fast, uh, like Katie had highlighted as well. But really, if you think about what is, what is, uh, what, what is genomic diagnostic uh, looking to, to uh, ultimately accomplish? And a lot has been accomplished. Uh, but basically, take a biological sample and uh, go through a workup procedure. And I'll blow that up a little bit uh, to, to present to, to a next-gen sequencing machine like Illumina's uh, to, in a high-fidelity way, determine whether that uh, target gene, i.e. a cancerous gene, um, uh, is in that sample or not uh, in a very high-fidelity way. Well, um, to, to, to get a biological sample, uh, you know, a solid tumor, you know, an invasively um, created uh, or gathered sample, um, you know, in that solid tumor, let's say it's stage three or stage four, it's theorized to be an advanced cancer. Um, there's a lot of cancerous DNA in there, but there's, it's, it is, uh, first, it's a solid, it needs to be processed, the, the DNA needs to be isolated, DNA fragments need to be isolated, and we need to um, have um, uh, templates to compare against, so the, need, the templates to compare against are coming from DNA synthesis. Um, we also need to um, isolate the DNA in that sample, and we need to isolate target DNA from other DNA fragments. Um, uh, uh, and, and with that isolation, we can then amplify um, with enzymes and present to the, uh, the uh, next-gen sequencing machine and get a high-fidelity result. Um, now, if you, if you challenge that system a little bit, you challenge it by not taking a solid tumor um, or a solid biopsy, but instead we're looking at DNA fragments in blood. Now you're re dramatically reducing the concentration of, of the target DNA in the original sample. You have a tremendous amount of additional work to isolate target DNA. This is an area that, that's a booming area for CADEX is to engineer enzymes to enhance um, uh, the isolation of target DNA in, in trace quantity samples like liquid biopsy, like earlier stage cancer uh, samples. Um, so the, 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 um, the opportunity for enzymes to improve the applicability of next-gen sequencing for genomic diagnostics is, is, is clear from these examples. Um, but the, uh, you know, for us, we need to look at a lot of different enzyme diversity to be able to bring forward and commercialize enzymes that enhance these diagnostic procedures. We need DNA upstream to do all the diversity creation that I described earlier. Um, and then broadly for diagnostics, you know, the marketplace needs libraries, needs libraries to compare against. And those libraries are created uh, through DNA synthesis companies like, uh, like Molecular Assembly. So it's a really, um, uh, you know, really exciting area for, uh, for DNA synthesis to, to make a difference for the world. Great. Thanks for those perspectives there. <clears throat> So moving on to um, last but not least, a um, bit, perhaps a bit farther out uh, application, but a cool one nonetheless. So DNA's applicability for data storage. So some interesting wild facts on the left. Um, in 2003, humans throughout history had produced a total of about five exabytes of data. In 2010, human produce, humans produced that much, uh, that much data every two days. And now <clears throat> every year we will produce, you know, six or seven orders of magnitude above that on a yearly basis. Um, just massive, massive, massive amounts of data. And many experts, um, including George Church, who, who you know, we cite often, um, uh, have said that there's just not enough microchip 
grade silicon in the world to store all the data. All the data. Um, so um, the natural uh, next step is looking at at the the oldest form of information storage on the planet, DNA, um, to greatly re reduce that footprint. Um, so, you know, the thinking goes a massive warehouse full of uh, magnets and, and uh, silicon could be stored in something the size of a sugar cube. Uh, but Mike, can you can you tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about this, what the time frame is, who the other parties are, um, and, and how how far away we are from from something like this? Sure, I think you know when I first came to Weicker Assemblies, this seemed like uh, pretty far out there, outside of sort of the ten year horizon. But I think due to government initiatives and and this DNA Data Storage Alliance that we've we've become part of, which was founded by Microsoft, Western Digital, Illumina, and Twist, and has about thirty members. We're starting to generate uh, product roadmaps to really build towards being able to store data on DNA. So, so we think it's probably within the next five years, you'll start to see the, 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 at least the forefront of being able to store data on DNA. We were the first group to announce uh, about a year or so ago that we stored a, a text message using enzymatic DNA synthesis. So it's, a, it, it's definitely accelerating. I think there's a lot of bright companies, a lot of bright minds that are, that are focused on this. And I think you hit the nail on the head, Tom, that we're generating more data than we can store. And, you know, with things like Instagram and TikToks and all these other things, there's just so much being generated, you know, that the worry from the government perspective was we're going we're gonna to have to lose or destroy historical data. So there's, there's a, a sort of a value proposition there for sure. And that's what's got all of these companies so focused on creating a roadmap for this to come forward. Fantastic. Great. Well, this is uh, this is great timing. I know we have a couple questions. Um, I have some some questions uh, as well to prompt additional questions, but it looks like we already have questions coming in. So, um, looks like Eric asks question for John Nichols. Uh, now, DeepMind and Washington University have made their protein structure algorithm AlphaFold, and uh, uh, Rosetta Fold available to public. How will these newly available algorithms impact the protein design in the symbiosis space? Yeah, it, these are really exciting uh, developments. Um, developments that are accelerating uh, algorithmic predictive capability to translate from a protein's amino acid sequence structure, which is simple to to put on paper, to a three-dimensional structure. Uh, a picture, a video, uh, a, a view of how um, an amino acid sequence will uh, translate into the physical reality in terms of structure. Um, this is a really critical step um, in designing a new protein or a new enzyme. Um, the next step in the process is to understand how that structure will perform um, in a real world application. Um, and so these algorithms are advancing our ability to translate from sequence space to structural space. Um, but there's still a great need to understand how either sequences or structures translate into, into real world performance in a target application. And there are many different applications. There are many different performance needs uh, that uh, vary by different uh, performance applications. So, so this, this is a really great leading edge area to use algorithms and artificial intelligence to enhance our knowledge of enzymes and protein structures to ultimately find new products that perform uh, in desirable new 
uh, in new ways in, in a, a range of different marketplaces. Um, the, the state of, of predictive capability of all of today's algorithms are still pretty infantile. So there'll be a lot of uh, a lot of additional development and a lot of additional improvements over time. Codex is doing machine learning on the unique data that we generate, which generally doesn't spend a lot of time looking at the three-dimensional structure. It just goes from amino acid sequence to performance um, in the target performance application. Uh, but uh, the the uh, predictive capability is still very very nascent. Um, so advancements in algorithms led by places like Google DeepMind and the Baker uh, Group at Washington University uh, and other enterprises are going to have a real bearing. The ultimate state would be, I want an enzyme to perform as XYZ, um, and you plug that into a computer and it says, here's the structure that delivers that performance. The fact of the matter is, is we're very, very far away from being able to predict um, enzymes uh, and proteins performance in that kind of a way. But ultimately, um, we're going to get closer and closer. So these kinds of developments are, are very helpful um, in that march. Fantastic. You know, one of the questions I had, uh, Mike and John, was just around um, competitive landscape. And I know, you know, Twist's main thing, main uh, technological advantage is really the miniaturization and um, the kind of the delivery of the DNA. How do you think about how do you think about um, matching their uh, algos per square meter? Uh, and how do you think about de delivery of your DNA um, when compared to companies like that? Well, so first off, uh, just, just for everybody's clarity, you know, Twist still uses the old chemical method. So they're mm -hmm. not an enzymatic player at all. Uh, you know, Emily from Twist has said, look, I'd like to be your first customer. And we think technologies like ours could port onto their platforms and other platforms. So I think, I think there's opportunities for, for synergistic, uh, op, you know, possibilities where the companies could, could work together. I think there's going to be other areas that, you know, will be competitive. I think, uh, I think Katie hit the nail on the head. I think, and when you look at the chemical method to try and get out to a gene, you have to take seventies and seventies and keep stitching them together until you get to 1500. And that comes with yield loss, error correction, post-synthetic processing costs. And frankly, about 30% of the genes that are delivered aren't, aren't accurate. So if it takes six to eight weeks to get a gene and you have to turn it back and wait another six to eight weeks, that, that's a time crunch that, that Katie and Joe are both speaking about. So I think there's gonna be queer areas where we're gonna be able to accelerate well past what chemical methods can do. And then other areas where there might be the opportunity for synergy. Sure. Can you talk to us a little bit about the issue and question of biosecurity um, and how and what Molecular and, and others in the industry are, are doing to, to mitigate some of those concerns? Yeah, I think it's on the forefront. I mean, I think the nice thing about the SynBio world is there's a lot of, uh, it's a real collaborative uh, group of people and group of organizations. So there's, there's definitely an effort across companies to look at biosecurity. One of the reasons that that we've opted to go with a service model versus one of your lower questions, a desktop synthesizer is precisely that. We can control the DNA that's made, we can do all the QA and QC, and we can also ensure the appropriate biosecurity. So it's definitely, it's definitely a, a, a growing topic within the SynBio world for, for certain. Great. I suppose the last question for me would be to both, both uh, Mike and John, um, what, what applications are you most excited about as the company continues to progress in, in length and fidelity of algos? 
I, I, I like them all. Uh, I like I like therapeutics. I like the, the we're really learning the world of ag and 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 food and beverage. And I think those opportunities are, uh, you know, as 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 Joe and Katie said, are right there on the forefront. And then obviously data storage, I think would would if successful would trump it all because there's just so much data that's being generated. So I think, you know, I guess I, I you know I'm I'm the optimist, and I think all these applications are really exciting. Yeah, I, I, um, I mean, Conexus is playing across a very wide set of industrial sectors, but what's most exciting and most dynamic today um, is really in the world of molecular biology. So, so modifying um, mechanisms and pathways in molecular biology are, are all effectively instigated by enzymes, and those enzymes need to be discovered through a massive numbers game, like I described earlier, which requires a lot of oligos and genes. Um, but we're gonna be able to, to engineer a, a universe of enzymes that enhance um, uh, gene synthesis, that enhance RNA synthesis, that enhance um, gene editing um, uh, in ways that are very bespoke to the downstream player for different target disease, for different target diagnostics. There's going to be modifications of of, of enzymes to to en enhance and and enable those technologies to be successful. And it's going to create a tremendous amount of need to look at diversity of enzymes fed by diversity of DNA. So this area of life science tools and molecular biology is really really kind of it it it's formative for therapeutics. It's formative for synthetic biology. It's really where it all starts is if we can modify at that, le that level, we're gonna be able to impact downstream sustainable manufacturing, life science tools and, and therapeutics and, and other applications. So this is the area that Scott Cadex is most excited in in the, in the current um, situations. Fantastic. <clears throat> well, Mike, John, Katie, Joe, it's been a, been a great pleasure to have you on. I thank you for your time. Um, thanks to all our attendants uh, this morning. As a reminder to the attendants, um, these uh, these webinars are recorded and will be available for replay. Um, and we do host these uh, once a month, uh, generally on the second or third Wednesday of the month. Next month's topic will be um, put on by my colleague David Yoakum on specialty crops. And we hope to see you all there. And uh, if there are any questions uh, for anybody listening to this retroactively, uh, feel free to get in touch with me. Um, if I can't answer it, I'll, I'll get in touch with some of our experts here. Uh, but really, thank you all very much again, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Great. Thank, thank you, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Thanks really. I appreciate, appreciate it. Take care.